Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview philosopher Ruth Chang. Our age's preoccupation with naturalism versus non-naturalism is downright bizarre. Remember to visit commonsenseatheism.com for more episodes and articles about God, science, and morality. Dr. Ruth Chang is an associate professor of philosophy at Rutgers University. She has published a couple dozen papers, mostly on ethics, value, and practical reason. Ruth, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's my pleasure to be here. Ruth, before we talk about morality, let's talk about practical rationality, because a lot of philosophers think that practical rationality is the source of moral value. So what is practical rationality, and what are reasons for action, and what's that all about? Well, I think it's actually very astute of you to start with the question about the distinction between morality on the one hand and practical reason or practical rationality on the other. To my mind, there's been a shift, I'd say, slowly occurring in the last 30 or 40 years from interest in what we might call morality with a capital M to interest in practical reason or practical rationality. So pretty much throughout the bulk of the last century, I'd say, theorizing about what we should do was theorizing about what we should morally do. And the morally here was morality with a capital M, that is morality that was of overriding importance in human life. Yeah. So another way to put this is to say that the moral ought was assumed to be pretty much the practical ought. There wasn't any distance between figuring out what to do and figuring out what morally you should do. So even though it would be to your prudential benefit, say, to steal the last piece of candy when no one is looking, if you had a moral reason not to, that would settle the matter, right? You shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And this view isn't so crazy, so it's understandable why moral philosophers assume that the moral ought was pretty much the practical ought since it's very plausible to think that if an action is morally wrong, its moral wrongness trumps everything else and you shouldn't do it. So you should never do what's morally wrong, so let's just sit down and figure out what's morally wrong, and then we'll have a guidance to action. There is a problem, though, with this assumption, which is that if you assume that the practical ought was pretty much the same as or fully determined by the moral ought, there are some counterintuitive problems. So there are many legitimate concerns that feed into, intuitively speaking, how you should live, right? what you should do, things that aren't obviously moral. If morality requires caring for starving strangers, you know, halfway across the world, then there's this question, how could you be justified in buying a new car for yourself or a new set of shoes for your child? Uh, when your old car or the old shoes are perfectly okay, and you could send that money to help those strangers instead. Mm-hmm. So philosophers thought, well, morality seems to conflict with prudence and other values, and so it's too demanding. And in response to this problem, moral philosophers spent a lot of time trying to figure out a way of understanding morality that itself included permissions or prerogatives for these partial concerns concerns for yourself and your loved ones, and maybe for general goods like a pristine environment, excellence in music, and so on. The goal here was to expand our understanding of morality so it would include all these other things that 
intuitively weren't moral, but morality was capacious enough to give us permission to pursue these non-moral things. So this was sort of the pattern of argument on the assumption that the moral ought was pretty much the practical ought. But slowly, and I'm not sure why, I mean, it could be reflective of a kind of moral decay if you're a pessimist, or, you know, it could be a backlash against the picture of the kind of person you'd have to be to always take morality as overriding, or it could be a kind of dissatisfaction with the ways philosophers have tried to integrate other non-moral values into morality, that there's been the shift of focus to the larger domain of practical reason itself without the assumption that the practical ought just is or is straightforwardly determined by the moral ought. So practical reasons or reasons for action, to get back to your question, are considerations that count in favor of doing something. And they're often contrasted with theoretical reasons, which are reasons for believing or considerations in favor of believing something. So when we ask ourselves, what should I do? I'm asking what I have most or sufficient reasons to do. Our reasons for action are the considerations for and against doing one thing or another. And that's what a reason for action is, something that counts in favor of or against doing something. Well, it sounds surprising to me that this would be a recent distinction to make because I think to most of us it's pretty intuitive that we might have reasons to oh you know take the car or whatever but then there might be moral reasons to not take the car so I think we're all pretty familiar with a distinction between practical reasons and moral reasons. Well the picture I'm trying to sketch now you know as an alternative to the old picture where practical reasons were fully determined by moral reasons is the one that you think is obvious. Once you focus on practical reasons and the domain of practical rationality, it's natural to think, oh, well, moral reasons are just one kind of reason for doing something. So there are moral reasons, there are prudential reasons, there are aesthetic reasons, economic reasons, environmental reasons, and so on. And the trick is on this new picture, as it were, is to figure out how all those reasons are put together so that we can come to a conclusion about what we should do, all things considered. Hmm. So there's a kind of, there's a shift away from the idea that when we're faced with a question, what should we do? We should, on the old view, figure out what we should morally do. And once you figure out what's morally right and what's morally wrong, that settles the matter. You can pat yourself on the back and go home. This alternative picture says, when you contemplate the question, what should I do? There are a plurality of different sorts of reasons fighting one another to be the winning reason or to together determine what it is that you should do with moral reasons being just one kind of reason among others. So on this other view, moral reasons aren't assumed to be of overriding importance. They don't necessarily trump the other reasons you have for doing things. And that, I think, is a fairly recent shift. I mean, this is obviously very broad brush, but the work of various philosophers distancing themselves from the idea that morality is all we should be focusing on has really come to the fore. Now, why do you philosophers always have to come in and make everything more complicated? <laughs> 
What do you mean? <laughs> well, it used to be so simple. You just find out what's moral and you do that. But now you're saying there's a much more complicated picture. Well, we try to get at what's right. Oh, truth. Okay. Right. So you start with the picture. Look, let's just figure out what's moral. And then we're done figuring out what to do. But then you notice a problem. Morality seems to require us to give all our money away to charity, say. But that doesn't seem right. Surely that's not what we should do. We have to care for our children and occasionally buy ourselves a nice treat. So that doesn't seem to be the right picture. So how do we solve the problem? Do we jimmy up a view of morality that seems fake, like that includes all these other values that aren't really moral values and just stipulate Look, morality is very generous and capacious and allows you to be nice to your friends and not spend all your income on the poor. But you can hold some back for yourself. But then how do you draw the line? There's sort of It seems forced. It doesn't seem a plausible picture of morality. So then the way to get out of this pickle is to shift your view and think, well, hold on, this assumption that the moral law really just is the practical law. Let's question that. Maybe moral considerations are just one kind of consideration that goes into the pot with all the other sorts of considerations there are. And we shouldn't assume that if whenever you have a moral consideration, it beats all the other sorts of considerations that may be on the table. So it's slightly more complicated in that there's a recognition that there are many different kinds of reasons that are relevant to the question, what should I do? But sometimes the truth is more complicated. Now, do you make a distinction between practical reasons for action, moral reasons for action, maybe aesthetic reasons for action, and they're all different kinds of reasons for action? Well, it's not that moral reasons for action are distinct from practical reasons for action. It's that moral reasons for action are one kind of practical reason for action. So the overarching idea is a practical reason. And a practical reason is a consideration that counts in favor of doing something. Then there are lots of different kinds of considerations that count in favor of doing things. There are moral considerations that count in favor of doing things. There are prudential ones, there are aesthetic ones, and so on. So the distinction isn't between moral reasons and practical reasons. It's a distinction, if I'm right in my gloss of the history in the last century of moral philosophizing, it's a distinction between taking the question of what you ought to do to be the question of what we morally ought to do that is answered solely by moral reasons to this new view that says, no, no, there's lots of different sorts of reasons that are relevant to the question of what we should do. Mm, okay. The practical reasons are the general rubric of which moral reasons are one species, if you like. So one thing you, you said in your question is, what's the difference between morality on the one hand and practical reasons or practical rationality on the other? Mm-hmm. So let's look at the difference between practical reasons or reasons for action and practical rationality. It's all very confusing because philosophers use practical rationality in two ways. 
First, they use it as a synonym, as you did in your question, and I did in replying to you, for what one has most practical reasons to do. If you have most reason not to smoke, it's practically rational for you in this first sense, sometimes called the objective or wide sense of practical rationality, not to smoke. You're practically rational whenever you do whatever you have most or sufficient reason to do. So that's one sense of practical rationality. It's just the same as a synonym for what you have most reason or sufficient reason to do. Hmm. Okay, then there's this other sense of being practically rational, sometimes called the subjective or narrow sense. So suppose you have a neighbor who lived to be 103 and you notice that she smoked every day of her life. And so you come to believe that smoking prolongs life. You also want very strongly to live for as long as you can. Now, given that you strongly want to live as long as you can, and you believe that the way to do this is to smoke every day, it is practically rational for you in this narrow sense to smoke. Or to take another example, suppose you want to kill Joe, your enemy, in as gruesome a way as possible. You believe that the best way to do this is to use a chainsaw. It would then be perfectly practically rational in this narrow sense for you to go out, get the chainsaw, and start chasing Joe around with it. So what is practically rational for you to do in this narrow sense is different from what you have most reason to do since you have most reason not to smoke, since, in fact, smoking will kill you, and you have most reason not to kill Joe with or without a chainsaw, right? You just have most reason not to do this. So you can put it another way, which is objectively speaking, you shouldn't smoke and you shouldn't kill Joe. But subjectively speaking, that is relative to your mental states, relative to what you want and what you believe, it's in accord with certain general principles governing proper movements of mind from one set of mental states to another and to action to smoke and to kill Joe, right? You, you really want to live as long as you can and you believe that the way to do this is to smoke three packs a day. So it's perfectly rational to move from that belief and that desire to the action of smoking three packs a day. But that practical rationality is dependent on your mental states, that you, that you have certain beliefs and desires, mm-hmm. even if they're false, mm-hmm. even if they're morally suspect, even if you have most reason not to have those beliefs or desires. So all I'm trying to do right now is to tease apart three important concepts in your question. One is morality. The other is practical reason. And then we've just discussed practical rationality, which can be understood first as synonymous with practical reason, and in the second narrow sense, that is what's subjectively proper, given your beliefs and desires, however false or heinous they might be. Well, I think I see a parallel there in the two distinctions you made about practical rationality with 
I don't know what it's called, dogmatic rationality or something, where it might be objectively irrational to believe in a law. But if the only stuff that's available to you is in support of the existence of a law, like everyone you know believes in a law, and you don't really know that much about science or history, then you might be subjectively, dogmatically rational in believing in a law. Would that be a fair analogy? Exactly. That's an exact analogy in the theoretical case. Okay. Okay. Great. So many philosophers take the view that only desires can provide reasons for action. For example, I have a reason for action to drink coffee, if and only if I desire to drink coffee. But some philosophers think that no desires can provide reasons for action. So, how does each side of this debate argue? All right. So this debate about whether desires are the only sorts of considerations that can provide reasons for action and whether they're never a consideration that provides a reason for action, actually runs together two different questions. So I'm going to characterize it in what I think of as the correct way and then talk about the other issue that it's run together with later. The debate over whether desires provide all our reasons for action or none of our reasons for action is a debate over what sorts of considerations systematically provide or are your reasons for action. So suppose you and I are sitting in a cafe and the waitron approaches to take our orders. I order tea, you order coffee. What's your reason for having coffee? Well, the fact that you want coffee. So it seems that your reason for the action of having some coffee is your desire for coffee or as philosophers sometimes put it, the fact that you want coffee. Now consider another example. Suppose I come upon you washing your friend's car. I ask you, why are you doing that? What is your reason for washing your friend's car? You might say, oh, well, I promised him yesterday that I would wash his car today. So in this case, it seems that your reason for the action of washing his car is the fact that you promised to do so. Or suppose I see you in the hospital emptying your wife's bedpan. What's your reason for doing that? You might say, well, she's my wife, or the bedpan needs emptying, or this will make her more comfortable. So in this case, it seems that these considerations are your reasons for action. Now, as these examples show, the kinds of considerations we naturally cite as our reasons for doing things are multifarious. The fact that we want something, the fact that we promise, the fact that someone needs our help, and so on. Each of these sorts of considerations can play a justifying role in explaining why we did what we did. So then the question becomes, and this is what I think the debate is about, is there at bottom one single sort of consideration that ultimately and systematically is your practical reason. That is, is there one kind of consideration that ultimately carries the action-guidingness of a practical reason? And one way to put this is to say that this debate is over the ultimate content of your reasons. When you cite all these various considerations in different cases as your reason for action, 
if we dig as deep as we can and figure out what really is carrying the action guidingness of a reason for action, it'll always be one kind of consideration. That's what the debate is about. What kind of consideration is it? And there are two main views here. So the desire-based view says that the single kind of consideration that ultimately carries the normativity of a practical reason is the fact that you want something. Right? So in the car washing case, you might say, look, my reason is that I promised my friend that I'd wash his car. But really, what carries the normativity of the reason, what is ultimately action guiding is your desire not to have your friend angry at you since you led him to believe that you would wash his car by uttering the words, right, I promised to wash your car. Mm -hmm. So that's the desire-based view, that systematically the single sort of consideration that ultimately bears the normativity of a practical reason is your desire or the fact that you want something. Then, against the desire-based view, there's a value-based view. And that view says, like the desire-based view, there is a single sort of consideration that is ultimately action-guiding. But it's not the fact that you want something, but rather it's facts about what you want. So you want some coffee. It's not the fact that you want coffee that is ultimately your reason to have some, but facts about the coffee, such as the fact that you'll enjoy having coffee or the fact that having coffee will help you stay awake and so on. Similarly, in the car washing case, your reason to wash your friend's car is not that you want something, like to avoid getting him mad at you, but rather facts about what you want. For example, the fact that it's good to avoid getting people justifiably angry, or it's good to keep your promises. Hmm. And in the hospital case, your reason to empty the bedpan is not that you want to make your wife comfortable. And if you think about it, the reason to do this act isn't about you or your mental states. How can your reason be that you want something? Rather, the value-based view theorist says, it's facts about what you want that provide the reasons, namely that it's good, that your wife be made more comfortable, and the goodness of that is your reason to empty her bedpan. So in short, the value-based view holds that the ultimate considerations that bear action-guidingness are facts about the goodness or value of things, not the fact that you want something. While the desire-based view holds that ultimately your reasons for action are provided by the fact that you want something. I can illustrate this distinction with a very simple example. Suppose there's a fire in front of you. We would all say you have a reason not to stick your hand in the fire. The value-based view says your reason for not doing so is that if you put your hand in the fire, it would be painful yeah. or that it would be bad to have a painful experience. That's your reason not to stick your hand in the fire. And the desire-based view says, no, no, 
your reason not to stick your hand in the fire is that you don't want to have a painful experience. Now, the trouble with the desire-based view is what happens if someone doesn't have an intrinsic desire not to have a painful experience? So suppose, you know, Joe lacks an intrinsic desire to avoid painful experiences of a certain sort, say the, the kind you get when you stick your hand in a fire. So let's not make him too bizarre. Suppose he doesn't want other kinds of pain, and it's not that when he sticks his hand in the fire, it feels like a mere tickle, right? When he sticks his hand in the fire, it feels just like when you or I do it. It's excruciatingly painful. But he's a little unusual in that he just doesn't mind that particular sort of pain. And he has no desire to avoid this excruciatingly painful sensation, nor does he have any other desire that would be frustrated by his having this sensation. Now, the desire-based view has to say, right, it's committed to saying that this character has no reason not to stick his hand in the fire. But this seems manifestly absurd. Everyone has a reason to avoid excruciating pain for its own sake. How can Joe not have a reason simply because he lacks a desire to avoid this particular sensation? So that, in a nutshell, is the main argument that's been repeatedly lobbed against desire-based views. And I think it's fair to say that desire-based views cannot, no matter how hard they try, even in principle, deliver the result that someone without the requisite desires has a reason to avoid excruciating pain. As a result, people think, look, this view is just dead in the water. Desire-based theorists, in answer to this objection, come up with all sorts of clever ways of trying to avoid counterintuitive results about what reasons people have. But all these clever ways fail. And if you think about it abstractly, they have to fail because there's an in-principle problem here with desire-based views in matching our most fundamental intuitions about what reasons we have. A desire-based view cannot guarantee that everyone has no reason to stick their hand in the fire. They can't deliver that result. They can add all sorts of bells and whistles to their view, but insofar as those bells and whistles don't sneak in value-based reasons, they can't, in principle, guarantee the right result. Now, some people think that we should give up on the idea of desires being ultimate bearers of action guiding us. How could they be reasons for action, given that if you think that that's all ultimately our reasons for action are, we end up with these counterintuitive results. But I worry that that's too fast. So in one of my papers, I argue against abandonment of the view that desires can be the ultimate bearers of practical normativity by trying to show that the fact that you want something really can be the ultimate carrier of action-guiding force. It can ultimately be your reason for action. 
And the argument for this turns on a particular view of the nature of desire as necessarily involving some affective component, some attraction or repulsion. So if desires involve putting their objects, the things that you want, either in some golden glow or casting them with some ugly, scary spikes, then I claim desires understood in that way, having this ability to cast a glow on their objects, are capable of being the ultimate bearers of practical normativity. And the other thing I say in this paper is that the usual arguments against desire-based views, because they neglect this affective feature of desires, they think of desires not as having this capacity to put a glow on their objects, that the arguments against the desire-based views turn on an impoverished view of desires. And once you make desires full and rich, you can see that they can be the ultimate bearers of normativity. And the argument in particular focuses on a special kind of desire state, which is feeling like it. So tell me what you think of this. This is a case that draws on a famous case called Bird and the Ass. So let's suppose you're in the line at the cafeteria. And to your left and to your right are two identical plates of chocolates. Not the chocolates, let's just say, are machine manufactured. So they're exactly the same size, exactly of the same constitution, arrayed in exactly the same way. So they're identical in every relevant evaluative respect, but one is five inches to your left and the other is five inches to your right. Now, take all the value-based facts that there are for preferring one plate of chocolate to the other. These even out because we've just said that they're evaluatively identical. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing good about the one plate that isn't also equally good about the other. Now suppose you have accurate beliefs about all this. Now add the thought that you feel like or you have an attraction for the plate of chocolate on the right. It's not that you believe that, you know, there's a tad more chocolate on that plate or that the chocolate on that plate is in any way better than the chocolate on the other plate. You just feel like having that plate of chocolate. This phenomenon of feeling like it is perfectly common. Mm -hmm. You might believe that it's not better or worse to wear your hair short or long, but you might feel like wearing it long. Or this morning, there were no value-based reasons to prefer wearing your pink shirt instead of your blue one, but you felt like wearing the pink one. It's not that you believed the pink one was in any way better than the blue one. Or after a long run, you could take a cold shower or a hot bath. You don't believe that one would be better than the other in any way. Both would be equally pleasurable but you feel like a hot bath. So if this is right, then in a case where the facts that could be the value-based reasons are tied, right, they equalize because the options are basically evaluatively identical, and if you feel like one of the plates of chocolate, say the one on the right, 
the question then becomes, is there now an asymmetry in practical reasons generated by your feeling like the plate on the right? And my claim is that there is. If you believe correctly that both plates are equally good, but you feel like the plate on the right, then you now have most reason to take the plate on the right. To see this, suppose you feel like the one on the right, but you take the one on the left, or you intend to take the plate on the left. We would think that there's something wrong here. Something went wrong. Hmm. You're being irrational. You're not responding to your reasons. Something needs to be explained. If this is a robust intuition, then you're desiring the one on the right carries normative weight. It carries the action guidingness of a reason. And since all the value-based reasons are, by hypothesis, tied, remember, it's not that you believe you'd enjoy the one on the right more. You believe you'd enjoy both plates equally. So since the value-based reasons are tied, there can be no value-based reason that explains the normative asymmetry created by your feeling like the plate on the right. So put another way, by feeling like the plate of chocolate on the right and taking the plate on the left, you open up a normative gap. We need to justify, explain, well, why on earth did he take the plate on the left when he believed both plates were equally good and he felt like the one on the right? Mm-hmm. If feeling like the plate on the right was not a reason, then we wouldn't have to explain. We'd need no justification for why you took the plate on the left because you believe that both plates were equally good. And so you'd be perfectly justified in either taking the plate on the left or the plate on the right. But once we add the thought that, look, he feels like the one on the right, you have a desire-based reason to take the plate on the right and no overall value-based reason to go one way or the other because the value-based reasons are tied. So if this example speaks to our intuitions, it follows that feeling like it is a practical reason. You feel like the plate of chocolate on the right. You believe that all the value-based reasons for having either plate are tied. If you go for the plate on the left, there's a normative gap. Something has gone wrong. We need to explain why it is that you're justified in going to the left. It must follow then that your feeling like the plate on the right carries the normativity of a practical reason. I think earlier we were talking about how some people argue that only desires provide reasons for action and others would say that desires never provide reasons for action, but it sounds like what you've said there is consistent with there being both feeling like it reasons for action and value-based reasons for action that all have to be considered together or something like that? Exactly. So the upshot of this argument, if it's correct, is not that value-based theories of reasons are wrong and desire-based theories of reasons are right. It's rather that Assuming that there are value-based reasons, there are also desire-based ones. So if you like, it's 
leveled against the value-based theorists who think that no desires can be reasons for action. This argument is meant to show that, hold on, some desires can be reasons for action. Now, one of the points of the paper is to say, even though it's a very long, windy argument, it's actually not very important. That I'm really not trying to pound my fist and announce, look, you value-based theorists, you're just wrong that desires can never provide reasons for action because I think that the philosophical action is really elsewhere. And this goes back to what I said at the beginning about this debate between the desire-based view of reasons and the value-based view of reasons, including two different questions. And the question I focused on was, what's the ultimate underlying single consideration that is your reason for action? And I think that's the correct way to characterize that debate. But in the threads of the literature of that debate is another question, which is, what is the thing in virtue of which something is your reason? Right. So whatever your reason is, whether we can systematize all your reasons and say, ultimately, there's one kind of consideration that is your reason, there's a separate question which is, well, why? Why is it that those considerations can be reasons? What makes it the case that, for instance, the fact that you want something or the fact that something is good can be action-guiding? Why should those facts have this extra property of being action-guiding? Right. What does it take for something to be a reason for action? Yes. What is it that makes something a reason for action. So there are all sorts of considerations we can come up with that don't seem to have the property of being a reason for action. Mm-hmm. And some other considerations do seem to have this further property of being a reason for action. And the second question is why? What explains why those considerations have this special action guidingness? And I think that's the important question, and that often gets run together with this other question of let's try to systematize which sorts of considerations are our reasons. So this leads into a tension between people who are externalists about normativity and those who are internalists about normativity. So what's that all about? So the question about which sorts of considerations ultimately are your reasons for action is one question you can ask about normativity. As I just said, the important question doesn't seem to me to be that one. So even though I try to show that there isn't a single sort of consideration that is ultimately your reason for action, sometimes it's desire, sometimes it's facts about what you desire, the real important question is, in virtue of what are those facts, whatever they might be, your reasons for action? So I said that the question of which sorts of considerations are ultimately your reasons might be labeled a question about the content of your practical reasons. The second question is a question about the source of your reasons or the source of the normativity, which is just a fancy word for action guidingness, 
where does that action guidingness come from? Or put another way, how is it that a certain consideration comes to be action guiding? Mm-hmm. And I think, Ruth, here I'd like to interrupt just a moment so you can clarify something for us. When you talk about action guiding, there might be two different ways to interpret that. One way would be the reasons why we do do things, and then another way would be kind of the practical rationality idea, the reasons why we should do things. So which are you talking about? Okay, that's a superb question. So, so far, we've distinguished two questions about practical normativity. One is the content of reasons. What consideration is your reason? Second question, in virtue of what is a consideration that is a reason? A reason, that is what makes some fact, whatever it might be, carry the normative force of a reason. But there's a third question. And the third main question is, what is the nature of this normative force that reasons have. What is practical normativity? What is this action guiding force? And there are three answers to that question. And philosophers often don't distinguish them. They talk about normativity and just assume it's one of these three things. So one thing normativity is sometimes taken to be is motivating force. It's just a psychological force Mm -hmm. in the natural world. So when we talk about a reason having normativity, what we mean is there's a consideration that counts in favor of an action in the sense that it has this motivating force. It compels you psychologically, if you like, to perform the action. Right. Other people think of normativity as this justificatory force. Right, a force of justification. And this is supposed to be some sui generis, non-natural force. So if something is a reason, it has this special justificatory force. It can justify your action. So if a reason counts in favor of an action, it counts in favor in the sense of justifying the action as opposed to motivating the action. Mm-hmm. And then there's this third view of the nature of normative force, which sees it as some kind of volitional force. Here, practical normativity is understood as some kind of push or pull of the will. And depending on your view of the will, it's natural or non-natural, who knows. But if a consideration is a reason, it counts in favor of an action in the sense that it has some pull on the will. It compels the will to perform the action. And those are three views about what we're talking about when we talk about a reason for action. A reason for action is a consideration that counts in favor of the action. But there are these three ways of counting in favor of an action. And it's important to keep them distinct. And I'm a bit confused on what the difference is between the first and the third. Because when I think of the reason that caused me to do something, whether you call that an effect on my psychology or an effect on my will, I guess maybe to some people that's different, but... Yeah, so some people think that you can be strongly motivated. You really, really, really want something, but you can steal your will against it. That chocolate cake, boy, I really want that, but 
I have a strong will and I'm not going to eat it. So if my motivations win out, I'll eat the cake. If my volition wins out, I won't. Because mm. I usually think of that type of will, like I'm just going to resist the cake, as just another set of my psychological makeup. But I don't know, is the will, like you're talking about it there, more relevant to people who are libertarians about free will? Well, not really. You don't have to be a libertarian to believe that there's such a thing as a will. So you're quite right that some people will think this idea of a volitional force really is just a species of a motivational force, mm -hmm. that we shouldn't distinguish between different sorts of causes of our behavior. But other people think, look, you've got to distinguish the passive causes of our behavior, things like desires over which we have no control, and our wills, which really just are us. So when I am caused to act by my will, that's me acting. When I'm caused to act by my motivations, it's these psychological forces, these desires swilling inside of me that cause me to act and may cause me to act against my will. And the usual case brought up to make this distinction is you know, the addict. So the addict, the heroin addict, strongly wants the next fix. But if he's an unwilling addict, when he has his fix, it's against his will. That's not him acting. It's his motivations taking control of him. Okay. Okay, so there are these three questions about practical normativity. Practical normativity has to be understood as this action guidingness or counting in favor of that practical reasons have. And sorry, I have one more clarifying question. It sounds like we're only talking about intentional action because it doesn't seem to make sense to me to talk about my practical reasons for flailing my arms when I'm having a seizure or something like that. Is that correct? Yes. So the paradigm case is figuring out what to do where that's deliberative and intentional action that will be its upshot. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the most important question right. to my mind it's a little obscure, it's a little delicate. Right? It's hard to wrap your mind around. It's the question of source. Right? And the precise way to put it is to use a philosophical idea, which is the in virtue of relation. In virtue of what is the fact that the experience is painful a reason for me to avoid the experience? That's the crucial question. Mm -hmm. And we can put it more colloquially in terms of making. What makes this fact, this fact that the experience would be painful, carry this action-guiding force, whatever the force might be. We saw that there are three different sorts of action-guiding force that could be involved here. And maybe it'll help to elucidate what this question is by running through the three answers philosophers have given to it. Hmm. So here's one answer. The thing in virtue of which something is a reason for action is nothing. So this is what you rightly call the externalist view about normativity. There's nothing in virtue of which the fact that it's painful is my reason to avoid it. And that's because the question is just a bad question. It's like asking... What is it in virtue of which an electron has a negative charge? 
Right? The answer is, it just does. You don't have to go behind the fact that an electron has a negative charge to explain in virtue of what does an electron have a negative charge. Similarly, to explain why it is the fact that an experience is painful is a reason for you to avoid the experience doesn't have any deeper, further explanation. There's nothing in virtue of which the fact that it's painful is a reason to avoid it. It just is in the same way that an electron has a negative charge. And that's one of the two leading views about this question of source. Now, the second view about source is the internalist view. And that view traces action guiding us to our internal states, our desires or our dispositions. What makes the fact that it's painful be action guiding is some relation to our desires or dispositions. Mm -hmm. So if the fact that it's painful provides me with a reason to avoid it, it does so in virtue of my desire to avoid pain. So this special action guidingness that practical reasons have is not much of a mystery. What makes a consideration have this special action guidingness is simply a connection with what we want. We don't want pain. So clearly the fact that something is painful has this action guidingness. It gives me a reason not to have the experience. That's the second leading view. And most of the debate in the last 50 years has been between these two views about normativity. So one says, here's where normativity comes from. It comes from, loosely speaking, this realm of normative facts. So when something is a reason for action, there's nothing in virtue of which it's a reason for action. It just is. It's just one of those normative facts out there that this fact is a reason for action. It's like there's an alternative normative reality in which there are a bunch of facts about which considerations are action guiding. And once you're familiar with that normative reality, you'll see this is a reason for that, that's a reason for that, and there's no further question of in virtue of what is that a reason for that. Well, that sounds pretty spooky. How would externalists figure out that you know pain provides a reason for action if there's no qualifications for what makes something a reason for action? Do they just appeal to intuition or what? Yes. So the externalist is saddled with all sorts of metaphysical and epistemological problems. If there really is nothing in virtue of which some fact is a reason for action, and it just is, the externalist is committed to there being normative facts. They don't reduce to anything. They're just these normative facts out there. And then immediately you get Mackie's two questions. Boy, what are these facts like? They don't seem at all like the natural facts with which are very familiar. Mm-hmm. So they're metaphysically queer. And then we get the epistemological question you rightly raise well, how on earth could we ever come to know that being painful is a reason to avoid the experience? Maybe 
having blonde hair is a reason to be avoided. Yeah. What about blue eyes? How do we know what is a reason for what if it's just a fact that X is a reason for Y? Mm-hmm. So those are problems with the externalist view. Now, the internalist view is not without its own problems. If what makes it the case that something is a reason is some relation to our desires, we have a version of the same problem we discussed before, which is, what if you have strange desires? If you have strange desires, then those strange desires can make it the case that certain facts are reasons for action in a very counterintuitive way. And that's because desires are mental states towards which we are largely passive. We don't have control over our desires. Mm-hmm. So suppose I say to you, look, I'm going to give you a million dollars right now if you want to eat this saucer of mud right? for its own sake. You have to just want to eat it intrinsically, <laughs> not because you want to get the million dollars, but you just have to want it for itself. You can't do it. Yeah. So the problem is we may find ourselves born with or hit with some Martian ray gun such that we have certain weird desires. And if those desires are the source of the normativity of our reasons, then the consequence is that we're going to have all sorts of bizarre reasons for doing bizarre things. So the internalist view doesn't seem to get it quite right. Like the desire-based view about content, there's this problem of getting a match between our intuitions about the reasons we have and this account of that in virtue of which we have those reasons. Well, look, why can't the internalist just say, I know that when we consider weird desires, the consequences of that for practical rationality are counterintuitive, but intuitions be damned. Why can't they just say, you know, our intuitions are incorrect? Why should we trust our intuitions about that? I'm going to go with the internalist account and just ignore that the ramifications of that are counterintuitive. So that is what many people say, and I think that's a very dangerous way to do philosophy, especially when the intuitions that are thrown to the wind are things like everyone's got a reason to avoid excruciating pain for its own sake. Do we really want to go with a theory that is naturalistically satisfying and throw out these fundamental intuitions about our reasons? Too high a price to pay. Let me push back just a bit more. So our intuitions about a lot of other things that were really, really important to us have also turned out to be wrong, like our intuitions about who we are as human beings and where we come from and where our place in the universe is and the existence of supernatural beings and all these kinds of things that we have very strong intuitions about have turned out to be wrong. So why not say the same about our moral intuitions? After all, it very much looks like our moral intuitions have just evolved with no particular relation to moral truth. So why would we feel so bad about giving up our moral intuitions? Right. I think you must be referring to the recent surge of interest in empirical psychology that purports to show how certain intuitions, you know, roughly evaluative or roughly ethical nature, not clear whether they're actually moral, but they vary with things like, you know, whether you're poor, 
and you eat at McDonald's a lot, or you're a middle-class white student at university, or factors of that nature. And I think, although you say, look, it's pretty clear that our moral intuitions have evolved, and maybe we can explain why we have the moral intuitions we do uh, without appeal to moral facts, I think the jury's still out. So if you look at the data in empirical psychology, I think it's fair to say that everyone would agree that there just isn't enough data to definitively support or refute the claim that our moral intuitions are ones we'd have even if there were no moral facts because of evolution or, you know, the Martians came down and planted them in, in us or something like that. Mm. Moreover, let's just grant, suppose we grant that we have a moral intuition that, say, harming people for fun is wrong because having such a belief conduces to the survival of the species. Well, that's why we believe that harming people is fun. And not because we're perceiving a moral fact out there that harming people is fun is wrong. Mm -hmm. So even if we grant that, it doesn't thereby follow that there is no moral fact that harming people for fun is wrong. Mm -hmm. There could be such a moral fact, and it may turn out that it conduces to the survival of the species that we have beliefs that mirror that track the content right of this moral fact right so just by chance evolution might have been truth tracking with regard to our moral beliefs well not by chance it's rather that it conduces to survival of the species right that we act in accord with the moral facts and the way to get us to act in accord with the moral facts is to select for beliefs in those moral facts Right. So while we have those moral facts, not because of the moral facts, we have them because it conduces to our survival. It's acting in accord with the moral facts that we're selected for. And our moral intuitions are just a means of ensuring that we do act in accord with the moral facts. Right? Mm -hmm. so, so even if you're the most mad dog debunking explanation evolutionary theorist, your conclusion will be our moral beliefs are had not because of any moral facts, but because of blank. And the blank will be filled in by evolution, by some other, you know, perhaps some causal explanation. That doesn't itself show that there are no moral facts. Right. Yep. Because evolution might have selected us for those beliefs only because those beliefs were a way to get us to act in accord with the moral facts. And acting in accord with the moral facts is what conduces to the survival of the species. Right. That's always a possibility that remains open. Or it might turn out that there are moral facts that bear no relation to our moral beliefs, although most people wouldn't be very satisfied with that result. Yes, that's totally possible. Okay, so we were talking about externalism and internalism and some of the difficulties that face both of them. Was there a third category? Right, so there is a third answer to the question of, in virtue of what is some consideration a reason for action? Right. And it's definitely the runt child. <laughs> the third view is what we call voluntarism. And like the internalist about normativity, the voluntarist says, Normativity comes from inside us. It doesn't come from some 
external realm of normative facts. It comes from us, but it doesn't come from our desires or other states towards which we're passive. It comes from our active state, in particular, our act of willing. So when you will something, you can make a consideration into a reason. So think about the divine command theory of morality. The normative force and content of our moral duties and obligations come from God's will. God just commands us to do certain things. And from God's willing that we do things, it follows that we have certain moral obligations. Then the Enlightenment rolls around and people think, who needs God? We can will ourselves. So man can lay down laws for himself. And the voluntarist view of normativity says, roughly, through an act of will, we can create the normativity of reasons in just the way that God's will created moral reasons. Practical reason is the largest domain relevant to the question, what should we do? And then there are different sorts of considerations that count in favor of doing this as opposed to that. And we can try to categorize the type of considerations if we want, but maybe that's not so important whether we call these considerations moral and those prudential. We just look at the considerations that count in favor of doing this rather than that. And then the real trick is, well, how do we weigh them up? How do they balance against one another? How do they relate such that we have most reason to do one thing as opposed to another? And some philosophers think, however we do it, there's always a truth about what we have most reason to do. Other philosophers, myself included, think more often than not, and certainly in all the interesting cases where we ask, what should we do? We only have sufficient reasons to do one of a number of things. So our practical reasons don't uniquely determine what we should do. Instead, they give us an array of options, each of which is, from the viewpoint of practical rationality, permissible or eligible. And then the question is, well, what do you do in that scenario when your reasons have in some sense run out in failing to determine a single course of action as the best one? Mm -hmm. And a lot of my work is actually focused there. If you're the kind of philosopher who thinks that's the usual case or, as I think, the most interesting questions, are ones in which reasons run out. Questions perhaps like, let me take any controversial moral issue, abortion, euthanasia, capital punishment, the structure of the welfare state, and so on. There are these complicated, plural reasons for and against one option or the other. Do we really believe that taking all the reasons for and against into account, there is a fact that one course of action is supported by most reason. There are many controversial issues where it seems reasonable to think if there were a God was looking at all the reasons, even he wouldn't be able to say, ah, this 
policy or this course of action is supported by the most reason. Mm. So if you think that more often than not, run out, the focus of theorizing about the normative, about what we should do, should start from the state of indeterminacy. It's just the case that most of the time when we're figuring out what to do next, we don't have most reason to do one thing as opposed to another. Now, is the reason that we can't narrow it down to one thing that we should do because different types of practical reasons are incommensurable? Like there's no way to add up prudential reasons and moral reasons and, and aesthetic reasons? So many people think that is the correct explanation of any indeterminacy among reasons. And here I use indeterminacy very loosely to just be synonymous with the idea that reasons don't determine a single course of action as right. supported by best reason. That's the usual view. And the way people articulate that is by saying, well, the reasons or the values that underlie the reasons are incomparable or incommensurable. They can't all be measured on the same scale of value. Mm -hmm. And first, I think it's important to distinguish two ideas. One is the idea of having a value or merit that can't be measured by the same unit or put on the same scale as another value or merit. So we might think, for instance, that we can't put a dollar figure on the value of your child or a dollar figure on the value of a lovely beach vacation. They're very different values. There isn't a single unit of value represented by dollars in terms of which we can measure the value of both. Right. But it doesn't follow that one value isn't greater than the other. The value of the child, we presume, is greater than the value of the lovely beach vacation. Mm -hmm. So incommensurability is a kind of side issue. It has sort of interesting upshots, but for practical rationality, what's more important is this phenomenon of incomparability. If the value of your child is incomparable with the value of the beach vacation, then there's no true comparative claim about how they relate. And if you make the further natural assumption that in determining what to do, you have to be able to compare the values of things at stake, then you're stuck. That, so that seems to be one way in which we can explain indeterminacy of reasons, reasons running out. Hmm. Now, as it happens, I don't think that that phenomenon, the phenomenon of incomparability, happens if I'm in a feisty mood ever, and if I'm being more cautious, very often. <laughs> and that's because I think there's a different phenomenon in the area that explains the indeterminacy of reasons. Huh. That isn't incomparability at all. It's a kind of comparability. So why should we think that when reasons run out, the explanation of why reasons run out is not that the reasons or the values that underlie them are incomparable, but rather something else. And the something else, in my view, is that the reasons are comparable in this funny way. Neither alternative is better than the other, nor are they equally good, but still they can be compared. And what I say is that this 
the way these things relate is that they're on a par. So there are four basic ways two items can evaluatively relate to one another. The first can be better than the second. It can be worse than the second. It can be equally as good as the second. Or the two items can be on a par. So what's the argument for parity? All right, we'll take a case where we think we've got indeterminacy of reasons, where reasons in some sense have run out, right? Uh We know at a minimum they don't determine one course of option or one item that you might choose as being better than the other. So let's go back to your coffee. Suppose you're choosing between a cup of coffee and a cup of tea. And coffee is pretty nice coffee. It's, It's good coffee. And it's steaming and it's fragrant very well balanced. On the other hand, you've got this cup of tea, and it's this lovely green tea from China that's delicate and exquisite in various ways. And what matters in the choice between them, suppose, is which tastes better. And the tasting good may be relative to your current mood. You can make it as specific as you like. You can change the covering value, that is, what it is that matters on the choice, to whatever you want. But let's suppose, for simplicity, it's just which tastes better to you. Okay. And, you know, you take a sip of the coffee, and you know all the good things about it. Take a sip of the tea, you know all the good things about it. But, you know, the ways in which the coffee is good are very different from the ways in which the tea is good. So you're quite certain that neither is better than the other with respect to good tastingness. Now, suppose that that's right. Neither is better than the other. We've got some kind of indeterminacy here of our reasons to choose one over the other. So we've checked off of our list the relation the coffee is better than the tea and the coffee is worse than the tea. Neither of those relations holds between the coffee and the tea. Now we improve the tea. We make it a couple of degrees hotter. We make it a little bit more fragrant. We add a little depth so it's got an interesting finish. We improve it in such a way that it clearly is better than the cup of tea prior to the improvement. So it's tea plus. Now tea plus is definitely tastier than tea. But after we make these improvements to the tea, are we compelled Is it true, universally, in every single case of this sort, that tea plus is now better than the coffee? Well, if you started with tea plus and the coffee, you could have come to the same conclusion you did about the coffee and the original tea. Mm -hmm. They're both different in various ways. It's pretty clear that neither tastes better than the other. So insofar as there are some cases in which an improvement in one item doesn't necessarily make it thereby better than the other item, it has to follow that the original tea, which we already established was not either better nor worse than the coffee, is not also as good as the coffee. And why is that? Well, suppose the coffee and the tea were equally good then it must follow necessarily that when we improve the tea and make it tea plus, the improved tea has got to be better than the coffee. But we just said that it's very plausible to think that there are cases in which 
the improved tea is not better than the coffee. And if the improved tea is not better than the coffee, then the original tea, before it was improved, couldn't have been equally as good as the coffee. Because if you have two things that are equally good and you improve one of them, it just follows as a matter of logic that the improved item is better than the other one. Right. So now we've checked off a third relation, which is equally good. So the argument so far, we've got the coffee is not better than the tea, the coffee is not worse than the tea, and the coffee and tea aren't equally good. So you might stop there and you might say, aha, conclusion is that the coffee and tea are incomparable with respect to taste. Right. And that conclusion would certainly follow if a substantive assumption that's hidden behind the conclusion were true. And that substantive assumption, which is one that I'd say almost universally held, is that if you take any two items and they can be compared, there can only be one of three relations between them. One's got to be better, got to be worse, or they have to be equally good. So conceptually, comparability is a matter of one of these three relations holding. Right. So I call that the trichotomy thesis. Right? You've got to have one of these three relations in order to have comparability. And many philosophers actually define comparability in terms of these three relations. But we have to be cautious. So before giving sort of general consideration as to why that assumption should be questioned, let's go first to an additional argument. So just to make it more vivid, take the coffee and tea, and now let's make it two careers. We've upped the stakes a little. We've upped the stakes, and it will help because the complexity makes the argument more plausible. And most of the cases we're interested in are complex ones. So here you are. You can have this pretty darn good career in IT, but you could also have this pretty darn good career as a philosopher. We run through the exact same argument we just did with the coffee and the tea. Jigger the details of each career so that you're practically certain, right, as certain as you can be, practically speaking, that neither career is better than the other with respect to whatever matters in the choice between careers. And, you know, lots of things will matter, like financial security, intellectual satisfaction, et cetera, et cetera. Whatever those things are, you're practically certain neither career is better than the other. Then we do the small improvement maneuver. We say, well, let's improve one of them. Let's say the philosophical career a tiny bit. Instead of making $30,000 a year, you make $35,000 a year. That's definitely an improvement in the career, but it doesn't thereby make the philosophical career better than the IT career, where, of course, you make a quarter of a million a year and have your company car and so on. Anyway, <laughs> fill in the details however you like. The target is the conclusion ah, well, after we run through the arguments, it must be that the IT career and the philosophical career are incomparable. But as we noted, there is a substantive assumption behind that conclusion. So we have to be cautious. So let's look at the following argument. Let's suppose we make the IT career really super good. So you're Steve Jobs. It's just a super fabulous IT career. Uh-huh. Now... We can get 
from the original IT career we had on the table to the Steve Jobs one by incremental steps. We just increase each of the dimensions of value that are relevant to the choice between the careers that are instantiated by the IT career a little bit. So you start out with the original IT career zero, improve it a bit, 10% salary increase, corner office, big research accounts, etc. That's IT career one, improve that one a little bit more, IT career two, and so on and so forth, until you get Steve Jobs. Is it Jobs or Jobs? Uh, I think I usually hear it Jobs. Okay. So if there are these incremental changes from the original IT career to the super-duper IT career, then we can step back and ask ourselves, well, hold on, it's pretty clear that the super-duper IT career is way better than the original philosophical career. After all, in the original philosophical career, you're stuck in Kansas making $30,000 a year, teaching six courses a year, (laughs) and it's very intellectually rewarding. You have this great freedom. There are all sorts of good things about it. But the super-duper IT career is clearly better than this particular philosophical career. So we have a kind of fixed point of comparison here. IT career, let's say sub-100, is better, clearly better than the original philosophical career. Now we ask ourselves, well, gee, could a small change in the value of the super-duper IT career trigger incomparability between an IT career and the philosophical career? How could we, by, just to take a kind of toy case, decreasing the salary incrementally by, say, $10,000 a year, suddenly trigger incomparability with the philosophical career, where before that change, we had comparability. So we know the super-duper IT career is definitely better than the philosophical career. We slowly make it slightly worse. And one question is, how could a small change along a single dimension of value, say salary, suddenly trigger incomparability where before we had comparability. Now add this thought to the further thought experiment, which is take the original IT career and let's make it increasingly worse. So it's really bad to the point where it's clear that this really bad IT career is worse than the original philosophical career. If by hypothesis, all of the IT careers are on a spectrum such that the evaluative difference with respect to whatever matters in the choice between the two careers is a small difference along a single dimension of what matters. It's hard to believe that when we start with the super-duper IT career, which is clearly better than the philosophical career, and we go successively down, We've got comparability with the philosophical career, 
Next step, comparability with philosophical career. Comparability with philosophical career. Suddenly, a space, a region of incomparability with philosophical career. And then as we go down, we get comparability again with a philosophical career. This time being worse, and so on and so on and so forth. I mean, there are two points here. One is, how can a unidimensional change in the value of an item trigger incomparability where before you had comparability? And second, when you look at the whole spectrum of IT careers, how can we explain how it is that we've got comparability with the philosophical career followed by incomparability and then comparability again? What would explain that structure of relation to the philosophical career, given how the IT careers on the spectrum relate to one another? It's just a weird view. So there are various things to say about this argument, but suppose that we buy it. If we buy it, then we've got this interesting conclusion, which is, well, it's implausible to think that the original IT career is incomparable with the original philosophy career for the reasons we just outlined. Mm -hmm. But we also said neither is better than the other, and by the small improvement argument, they're not equally good, so therefore they have to be comparable, but in a way that goes beyond being better than one another or equally good. And I just slap on a label, which is parity. Some alternatives are on a par. Now, whatever you think of the argument, part of the motivation for understanding the indeterminacy of reasons in terms of some kind of comparability rather than incomparability has to do with the practical upshots of facing incomparability versus some kind of comparability. So if, let's suppose, more often than not, and certainly in most interesting cases, reasons run out, and they run out because they're incomparable or the values underlie them are incomparable, then practically speaking, what are our options? Well, not a lot. Right? If the reasons are incomparable, it means that we haven't got any comparative relation with respect to what matters in the choice between the alternatives. Mm -hmm. So what can we do? Well, most philosophers think when you're stuck in that situation, you can plump, right? You just randomly go for one or the other. Mm -hmm. And what you do is not supported by practical reason. You're outside the domain of practical reason. There's something else going on. There's, you know, faith or intuition or just plain plumping. Sorry, what are you calling this? Plumping? Plumping. Yeah. So that's a, I guess it's a, probably a British expression, but since I was trained there, it seems second nature to huh. me. I don't think we really have a term in American English that's equivalent. At least philosophers want to make a distinction between plumping and picking. And I'll get to picking in a second. But when your reasons underdetermine your choice because they are incomparable, the thought is, your choice is now taken outside the realm of practical reason. And whatever you do, it's not going to be a matter of rationality, but it has to be something else. Yeah. So this is a kind of Sartrean picture. Like practical rationality is 
basically irrelevant. All the interesting choices we make in life are some kind of existential plumping or, you know, you can understand the plumping in some other terms, but not having to do with reason. So reason is really a small part of human life and choice. And you might have that picture, but I think it's an unsatisfying one. And if there is an argument that shows that there is an alternative explanation for indeterminacy of reasons, one that allows the alternatives to still be comparable, then we can maintain the idea that when reasons run out, we're nevertheless still within the domain of practical reason. And what we do is governed by practical reason. We're not outside of it. So we need to distinguish between the cases when alternatives for choice are on a par from another way in which reasons can run out. Not one that we've discussed so far, but another obvious way reasons can run out is when the reasons for the alternatives are equally good. Mm-hmm. So if you're in the grocery store and on the shopping list it says, oh, Campbell's tomato soup, and you're down the aisle and you see a 100 cans, if you take a look at all the reasons you have to pick one can as opposed to another, the reasons run out. Yeah. They don't determine that one can is the best can, the can that you have most reason to choose. <laughs> in that case, we would say that with respect to what matters in the choice, the cans of soup are equally good. Uh-huh. And that's an easy case. How do you respond when things are equally good? Well, you just pick where that's a philosophical term of art, but basically it's employing some randomizing procedure to determine what to do. So you might flip a coin. You might close your eyes and just grab something. Wait, so how is that different than plumping? So plumping is different from picking in that when you plump, what you're doing is not rational. It's not irrational, but it's not rational. It's irrational. It's outside of the scope of rationality. Mm -hmm. And so if plumping is all we can do more often than not, because more often than not, reasons are incomparable, then the picture we're left with is one in which we're living our life mostly outside of the scope of practical reason. If, on the other hand, suppose that when reasons run out, more often than not, the reasons are equally good. In that case, what we do in life most often is flip a coin. We pick something, but when we pick something, we're justified in whatever we pick because practical reason has told us, look, you can go for either. I, practical reason, sanction any choice you make. That's different from practical reason zipping its lip and saying, I've got nothing to say about this choice. You're outside of my domain. It's not within my jurisdiction. Well, you were talking about how, you know, when you have equal reason to do a number of things, then you would pick one of those things. Good. So we've discussed three ways in which your reasons can run out. One is if the reasons are equally good. The second is when the reasons are incomparable. And the third is this other idea where the reasons are comparable, but it's not that one set of reasons is weightier than the other or that the reasons are equally good. The reasons are rather on a par. And if you agree with the thought that reasons very often, and in the most interesting cases, run out, it's implausible to think they run out because they're equally good. 
And why is that? Well, because we can run the same small improvement argument we just talked about. If the reasons were equally good, then all we have to do is make a minor improvement to one of the alternatives. And it must follow that that improved alternative is better than the other original alternative. Mm -hmm. But in the most interesting cases, that's just implausible. It's just not true that when we make a small improvement in one item, it thereby becomes better than the other item. So some cases when reasons run out, they may run out because the reasons are equally good, as in the Campbell's tomato soup case. But the interesting cases that vex us, difficult moral issues and normative issues generally, the small improvement argument shows us that the right thing to say is not that the reasons are equally good, and so we can just flip a coin and pick one alternative over the other, but something else has to be the case. So that leaves one of two options. One is the reasons are incomparable, and the other is the reasons are on a par. Now, I've given two sort of general considerations of thinking the right thing to say is that the reasons are on a par. One is that complicated argument involving the IT career and the philosophical career, which if that argument works with the various caveats we didn't go into, then it must follow that the two careers are comparable, even though neither is better than the other, nor are they equally good. The second consideration was just a kind of plausibility argument. Let's step back and see what the upshots for the scope of practical reason would be if the way reasons ran out was they were incomparable. Well, we'd end up with this picture of human life where most of the interesting questions we're faced with are ones outside the scope of practical reason, where all we can do is just plump for one alternative for or another, where that plumping is not supported by practical reason. It's something outside the scope of practical reason. Mm -hmm. So just to make it vivid, if plumping were a matter of reading tea leaves or you know, whether or not it rained, if it rains, you go for the alternative on the right, if it doesn't, you go for the right. Do we really want our lives to be governed by things outside the scope of practical reason. Is that a plausible picture of how human life relates to practical reason? And I don't think it is. And I also think that the argument we have about the two careers generalized gives us some reason to think that putative cases of incomparability are really cases of this other phenomenon, the phenomenon of parity. So I think parity is crucial to getting an understanding of the right picture of what it is in virtue of which a consideration is a reason for action. Hmm. And I suppose there will be different types of sources for reason for action depending on whether or not we're talking about prudential reasons or moral reasons or aesthetic reasons, just by virtue of the fact that we define those words to mean different things, right? Well, no. Philosophers love to give unifying explanations of things. So if what we're trying to explain is the source of normativity, that is, in virtue of what is a consideration, a reason for action, the best answer we could come up with is a single answer. Here's the source. It's in this realm of normative facts. No, no, it's in our desires. Or no, no, it's in this active state of willing. 
And that explains the source of all practical reasons, whatever kind, moral, prudential, aesthetic, you name it. The source of a practical reason is simply this. I think there are strong arguments for thinking that each of the three traditional unifying accounts of where action guidingness comes from are deeply problematic. So the next best step, if we can't come up with a unifying explanation, we should come up with an explanation, one that makes sense. But there may not be a single source of normativity. There could be a couple of sources of normativity. And maybe these sources of normativity are related in a certain way and structured in a certain way. Well, let's back up for a second. So what were the three major sources of normativity? So the first source of normativity is this realm of normative facts. Right. And that's externalism about normativity. And the second view about the source of normativity is internalism. That in virtue of which a consideration is a reason is a relation to our desires or dispositions. Mm-hmm. And the third answer to the question of source is you find normativity inside of us, but not in these passive states of desires, but rather in our active states, our act of willing. Mm. Okay. And each of these views has very deep problems, mm-hmm. you know, sort of long-standing problems that haven't been solved. So one thing to do is to throw up our hands and say, oh, we can't answer this question. Another thing to do is to try to chip away at the problems for your favorite view and try to make it work. Mm-hmm. People have been doing that for generations, and I'm not sure there's much progress there. Something else you can do is to try to understand what might be true or correct about each of the three views. So I said before that philosophers love to give unifying explanations, and we do because other things equal, a simple explanation is better than a complicated one. Mm -hmm. So if you can find one source of normativity, that's really great. But if you can't, and much of life seems to be not explainable in simple unifying terms, and I, my own view is that the source of normativity is like that. There isn't a single source of normativity. There are, in my view, two sources of normativity. But it's not just a random ad hoc, here are two sources of normativity and sometimes the source is here and sometimes the source is there. There's a unifying picture that relates these two sources in a certain way that I think makes sense and captures what's right about at least two of the traditional unified views of the source of normativity. So, Ruth, most philosophers today are naturalists, meaning they think that the natural world is all that there is. But if that's true, the challenge to moral philosophers is, how can you have such a spooky, weird thing as objective moral value in a world that's made of quarks and leptons and bosons bouncing around? So how do we understand some of the major approaches that philosophers take toward that problem? That's an excellent question. So let me say first that I have to say that I think our agent's preoccupation with naturalism versus non-naturalism is downright bizarre. And that philosophers, a hundred years from now, or maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's more like a thousand years from now, will look back at the work we're doing on this question and think that our work is amusingly quaint. 
And the difference because the question of whether natural phenomena are the only real phenomena there are is not an important fundamental question, but because our work on this question will seem massively premature to philosophers down the ages. So here's what I mean by this. I find it puzzling when philosophers say things like, really, there are no numbers, or there isn't really such a thing as time or substance or necessity or possibility, or there is no such thing in the world that is being what you have a reason to do, or there are no values really out there. There's no special thing called agency, but only naturalistically describable chains of causal events, and so on. Like, all there really are are these quarks, leptons, and bosons. And the reason I find this puzzling is because I think we haven't got a clue as to what numbers, time, substance, necessity, possibility, values, reasons, agency. What are we talking about when we say there's nothing more to these things than naturalistically respectable phenomena? So it strikes me as premature to start announcing that things we only have the faintest grasp of, things like agency or values or reasons, reduce to this or that natural fact. Does any philosopher really understand what is involved in being an agent or a value or a reason? I doubt it. I know I don't. So my own preference is to see the task of contemporary philosophy as trying to illuminate at a middle level, a middle theoretical level, various important phenomena like agency, reasons, values, the will, and so on. We should try to do our best to understand what these phenomena are like, how they're related to other phenomena, what are their surface-level features, and so on. So to take an example, instead of starting with the assumption that many philosophers do, that a reason has got to be naturalistically respectable, because after all, all there really is are natural facts, and then from there, very quickly concluding that a reason has got to be a mental state like a desire, since that's natural, to be respectable. Let's instead figure out at an intuitive level how reasons can relate to one another and how they might enter into deliberation about what to do, their role in agency, their role in rationality. There's an apt analogy deriving from Aristotle in the case of metaphysics. Take the cake on the table. What is its nature? What's the nature of this cake? That's the question of metaphysics. There's uh, metaphysics of the lab, where we look at what is ultimately there on the table, and our answer will be, oh, there's a bunch of subatomic particles whizzing around. Then there's the metaphysics of the kitchen. Well, there's flour and baking soda and a touch of cinnamon and vanilla. At that level of explanation, we understand the nature of the cake in terms of our middle-level concepts flour, baking soda, and so on. Similarly, we can ask, what do values or normativity reduce to? We can ask at a higher level of explanation, what are the theoretical components of a value? How does a value operate in rational deliberation? What's the relation between a value and a reason? What we're trying to do is to understand the phenomenon of a value at an ordinary intuitive level. Mm -hmm. And how can we determine whether there's nothing more to the phenomenon of being of value other than some natural fact? 
before we really understand the phenomenon in all its messy, mid-level glory. So philosophers who rush to announce that there's nothing more to a phenomenon other than some natural fact are guilty of what I like to call, if this is not a G-rated show, premature philosophization. <laughs> so how do we get from quarks to moral obligations? I have no idea. But my view is that we shouldn't be too fussed about this. It's a great question because it really is the preoccupation of a good deal of metaethics. Another quick reason why we shouldn't be too fussed is there are lots of puzzles in the same neighborhood. So you could have just asked, well, how do we get from quarks to possibility? Or how do we get from quarks to the idea of evidential support for a belief? Or to the necessity of 2 plus 2 equaling 4? We don't know how we get there. But here's one thing we do know. We know 2 plus 2 does equal 4. And that it raining tomorrow is a possibility while there being a square circle is not possible. So we don't know how we get from quarks to these modalities, but that shouldn't undermine our confidence in their truth. And I think the same goes for ethical or normative truths generally. Ruth, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much for having me.